Hey, Springsteen fans. Welcome to episode number five of Springsteen Times 70, the ultimate breakdown of Springsteen's greatest 70 songs of all time, leading up to his 70th birthday. Today, I, Bobby Olivier, am joined by senior editor for Billboard Magazine and Billboard.com, Andrew Unterberger. And might I note, he also once won a uh, pop culture World Series that was on television. That's true. I did do that to me and two of my college buddies. I don't think there were any Springsteen-related trivia questions. That, uh, but, uh, okay. Well, uh, well, this podcast will end with a Springsteen trivia question. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, only for you. We're doing it every episode, but only for you. <laughs> um, so... Uh, we are going through songs number 30 down to number 21 today, uh, and there are some ridiculously good ones, the, the best ones yet, uh, obviously. Um, so let's get right into it, and we're going to hit into number 30, which uh, has a ton of meeting and, uh, to me, a really weird uh, alternate meeting. That was uh, Into the Fire from The Rising 2002, number 30 on our list. Uh, and uh, so that was the first song that Springsteen wrote uh, post 9-11. Obviously, The the Rising, we've, as we've talked about, uh, has a, is a big reaction to the 9-11 tragedy. Um, but uh, I have a, a weird story about this one. But I will, uh, Andrew, I'd love to hear what you think about this song first. Oh, I, I think it's uh, it's definitely one of the more effective songs in the album. I think, you know, they, they kind of... They are in the gospelness of the chorus. Uh, Bruce's verses—they're they're sort of underplayed. They're kind of unintelligible in spots, but uh, but they, they lead in really nicely to this kind of you know, two-line pre-chorus and then that really rousing gospel. You know, uh, may your faith give us faith, etc. Uh, right. Little refrain, and it's it's uh, it's pretty powerful. Uh, it, it's you know. I, I think some sometimes like kind of the, the 9/11 narrative of this album gets gets overplayed a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and you know obviously a lot of it was written before 9/11, and right. uh, not not too many of the songs deal with it directly, but this one does it in a, in a pretty it's pretty on the nose, I think. It, it's on the nose, yeah. but it, it it doesn't feel overly it doesn't feel forced it doesn't doesn't feel right. over, overly uh, sensationalized or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm fine with it being around here on the list. Yeah. Good. Uh, and uh, so my my weird story is uh, for a, an article I wrote in 2015, I think it was, I sat in on a freshman seminar at Rutgers, which was a called a Springsteen theology course, mm. uh, which only in New Jersey sure, yeah. and only only at Rutgers would you get such a class. Um, sure, it was well attended. Yeah, it, it had like 13, like 18 year olds, one of whom had ever actually listened to Springsteen before. Oh, really? Like, it was one of those classes that you kind of got like placed into so, uh, um, against your will. A class for the, for the uh, a class for the to be converted, not not a yeah, yes, class. definitely. Oh, and the uh, and the professor was definitely a Springsteen diehard. Into the Fire was one of the songs that they were analyzing the day that I was there, and. Uh, he would he was directing the students to verses from the Old Testament to specifically if anybody wants to look this up to uh, two Kings two twelve uh, where they connect the lyric to Elijah leaving his disciple Elisha and his ascension into the heavens on chariots of fire and uh, he continued said talking about uh, the strong sacrificial imagery and its symbolism of religious healing 
uh, and that was about as much as I could handle. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and I, I hadn't even thought about uh, that article until I was listening to this. And I was like, oh yeah, I have some crazy opposite uh, remem- remembrance about this album. Well, that makes uh, sense. It was kind of biblical underpinnings to yeah. To this, 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 that much, you know, about faith and about uh, you know, internal strength and, and with the, the gospel choir in the background. And yeah, yeah. It, it, it sort of sort of works. Yeah, and I, I think it's one of the more memorable ones from uh, from the Rising, and one of my uh, personal favorites of 21st Century Bruce. So on to number 29, which is one that everyone knows, a uh, gigantic fan favorite. That was uh, number 29, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, of course, from Born to Run, of course. Um, and so there, we could talk about this song for probably the entire podcast if we really wanted to. Um, but uh, a few just memories for me. I mean, I, was, I will always remember it opening uh, his four-song set at the Super Bowl mm. uh, when he did it at the Super Bowl and told people to put down their guacamole dip and uh, slid crotch first into a camera and... You know, just usual old old Bruce. Thing that struck me about this, I don't think I knew this before doing research about this song, that this song basically got uh, Miami Steve, Little Steve, and Steve Van Zandt into the East Street Band. He wasn't a full-time member um, until around Born to Run era, and apparently what really helped him get in was he uh, instructed the sort of novice horn section what to do for the uh, for the intro, and well, really instructed Springsteen of what he thought he should tell them to do, um, and then that was uh, sort of what got him what got him to stick. Uh, so, did you know that? Because I, I didn't know, know that. that. But that, that I guess that makes sense. It's a, it's a really well arranged song. Obviously, a lot of it, a lot of the power comes from that horn section and the arrangement there. So, uh, you know, I, I think he passed the test on that one. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the, there's always been a little bit of. Uh, controversy over whether 10th Avenue is about 10th Avenue in Belmar, New Jersey, which is where uh, Dave Sanchez's parents, uh, they lived on East Street, but it was like a block away from 10th from Avenue. Um, everybody has that, uh, everybody who, all the Springsteen superfans who visit the shore and like take all the pictures, they have like the picture of the cross section of East Street and 10th Ave. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is that when they were recording at this time, uh, the record plant in Manhattan was only a block and a half away from 10th Avenue in New York, um, so some people think it was also about that. Um, I've heard, I've heard, credible people saying both schools of thought. Is there an accepted answer for what a 10th Avenue freezeout actually consists of? You know, I think it's an ice cream pop. Um, no, I <laughs> no, I mean th- this has always been sort of a nonsensical song. Sure. Uh, th- it's loosely based around like the forming of the band. Yeah, it's, um, it's sort of a creation myth. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. There's definitely a mythos around it, and the when the big man joined the band, that's turned into a big tribute for Clarence Clemens. Uh, they on the uh, the Wrecking Ball tour, the first major tour after Clarence uh, passed away in 2010. The tour was in 2012, and uh, they uh, like stopped the stopped the song "Cold," if I remember correctly, uh, to like, do a quick tribute to him. But now when they play it, when they played it on the River Tour at MetLife uh, a couple years ago, they, they put his picture up and everyone cheers. Um, so it's, it's become like a 
it's gotten like, gotten like a, a second act. To Clarence. Or, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I think the song does a lot of the heavy lifting on Born to Run. I mean, it, it, when you think of the album, you think of these kind of bombastic, you know, three-part mm-hmm. epics. And, uh, yeah. uh, and and even a song like Born to Run, which is, which was a, a pop hit, is, is still so weighty and, and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of go for broke. But this is, this is a really much much simpler and a much uh, much sort of straightforward sort of like uh, you're like yeah we still got it we, can, mm-hmm. we still are that kind of bar band that can right. can go ten rounds with the best of them right and that, that does a lot to kind of stitch together the the way the, the weightier and more bombastic parts of Born to Run I think yeah yeah I completely agree and uh, I will look forward to the emails from people who uh, just heard you call Born to Run a pop hit uh, only <laughs> hey man we're the yeah, top forty only right? I know only a man from Billboard would say that. Um, okay, on to number 28, which is uh, something even older than 10th Okay, that was uh, It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, uh, number 28. That's off of Greetings, 1973. Um, and so first off, big shout out to uh, Dave Sanchez, who played piano on this and played awesome piano. Uh, ob- the, of course, the predecessor to Roy Bitten. Uh, Sanchez was just 18 when he recorded this. Uh, so uh, what were you doing when you were 18? Um, and... There's uh, some cool little tidbits about this song, but what always struck me as the as the fellow New Jersey guy who's always sort of been in awe and had like a love hate relationship with New York, you can just feel like Springsteen sort of getting his uh, his feet wet in the in the city and like thinking he can take it over when he obviously cannot. Well, he I guess he can <laughs> yeah maybe he did maybe he yeah. does a couple decades later. Yeah, no, I, it's. Uh... It's a great first album song, I think, but it, it does sort of feel like kind of Bruce getting his feet wet, as you were saying. Uh, and have you, have you ever heard the David Bowie version of this song? Yeah, I was, that was that was uh, what I was, what I was going to say. It was an outtake from Station to Station uh, a couple years later in 1975. Yeah, I mean, it's David Bowie, so of course it's pretty pretty yeah, good. It's, it's so interesting to me because you wouldn't think of these these two artists really not necessarily having a lot of artistic overlap. Uh-huh. I mean, even though they were both you know pretty seismic around the same time in the, in the mid 70s, especially. Uh, like you, you just you think of you know Bruce as being this kind of down to earth uh, you know street rocker and David Bowie being this this more sort of high minded art rocker. Mm-hmm. But you, you, when I, I, it clicked for the first time, I heard like the first lyric of, of Bowie doing the song, the, the, right. that, that line about the, you know skin like a cobra or whatever. Like, yeah, like, and it sounds it sounds perfect coming from David Bowie, just like it does sound coming from Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, so, uh, they have I guess more the same flair than you realize, and uh, yeah, the same sort of uh, kind of cockiness to them. I guess. Yeah, they're all just poets, man, <laughs> uh, and. The uh, so it's hard to be a saint in the city. Uh, another little bit of lore about it: it uh, this was the first the first of the couple songs that Springsteen played for his audition for Columbia Records for uh, John Hammond, uh, and apparently th- this was the song that made Hammond like really latch on and be like, okay, th- this is the guy we need to sign because um, of the lyrical content. Because uh, all those greeting songs were so wordy, like they're all like party tricks being able to actually sing all, all of these yeah, songs so the, the, the most frustrating part of this song is just waiting for the chorus line yeah like, it takes forever to get there mm-hmm. and, and you know you, you, the verse goes around like like you know 50 percent longer than you always yeah. think it will which is really is really kind of clever I guess. yeah yeah and uh and actually like with uh no surrender and a couple other songs uh springsteen was actually in favor of putting a different song in the song spot uh, on the album there's a song called visitation of fort horn it's like very folksy acoustic number 
um, that he wanted on Greetings, but uh, Mike Appel, his producer manager at the time, uh, who helped get him signed to Columbia Records, uh, thought it was like too folksy and was in favor of putting uh, Hard to Be a Saint in the City instead. So, and the rest was history. Back to that, uh, that John Hammond bit for a second. Like, yeah, there's so many like so many of these stories in the '70s about <laughs> like uh, you know producers, managers, uh-huh. uh, you know. Record execs just hearing Bruce, and it's like, uh, like being introduced to cocaine for the first time. It's like, <laughs> like okay, I'm going to re- reorient all of my life priorities towards just making this one guy my sole focus. Right. Which is probably like the greatest testament to his power in the 70s. Yeah, and John Landau, the, the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all right, well, on to number 27, uh, which is a much newer song from a an era that uh, people don't like as much as I do. Okay, that was number 27 on our list, Better Days from Lucky Town, uh, the lead single off Lucky Town 1992. And uh, I'm going to start out by saying something kind of controversial and crazy. Uh, That song in particular, that sort of country-tinged heartland rock, I wish that that stuck around. I would have taken like one more album or or like one more EP with a couple more songs like that. That song is pretty straightforward. It's basically about how happy he was with... uh, Patty, Patty Schialfa, his reasonably new wife at that time, he was expecting his second child, uh, first daughter, Jessica, now the equestrian celebrity. <laughs> that song, I mean, I don't know who else is putting a Lucky Town song at number 27, uh, but I don't know. I guess I, me. I think I think maybe it should be a little bit higher. Yeah. Yeah, oh. no, I, I love that song. That song. I, I, I'm a, kind of a sucker for veteran rockers doing like, hey, my life is actually good now type yeah. songs. Uh and you don't hear very often, you especially don't hear it from Bruce very often. And yeah. apparently, you know, there's that quote he had, I think, like later, later on in the 90s, where he talked about, like, oh, yeah, yeah you used to write about a bunch of happy songs. People didn't like that so much. <laughs> uh, and, you know, f- fair enough, I guess. Although I, 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 it's not like the entire, you know, the entirety of Lucky Town or Human Touch are mm-hmm. like all that, you know, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Right. This, this is just like a really powerful song. I mean, it's, it's got a great chorus, it's, uh, it's got some really kind of like insightful lyrics. That, that, that line about, uh, like, uh, being, you know, having being living in your own skin and not liking the company you keep and how sad that is, but yeah. like, like, I, I, I don't, I never understood why this this album got such a bad rap. I mean, yeah, and it's funny because it still got like reasonably good critical reviews at the time. It was just, I think the fact that it was th- those two albums were the first ones that really didn't feature the E Street Band yeah. nearly as prominently, and the first ones in five years, and they yeah. have terrible titles and terrible album covers. Oh yeah, uh, so I'm sure none of that helped. Yeah. But yeah, this is like a this is a really good song. I mean, I, I and I don't think it would sound out of place like among his you know his other, his other great songs on classic rock radio or at a concert. Right. I, I don't I, I don't know why why this song hasn't survived better than the rest of. Uh, yeah, because I feel like you I feel like you never hear that no. song played anywhere. Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> um, and uh, so, fun fact: that is the only Bruce Springsteen song to feature American Idol judge Randy Jackson, mm, and well, right. pro- prolific bassist and later American Idol judge Randy Jackson on bass. Um, and Randy Jackson, who also played uh, a bunch of bass on Whitney Houston's song, Another New Jersey Peg. There you go. Um, and I don't know, it's just, uh, it's just one of the good ones. Um, so let let Bruce live everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Let Let him, let him, yeah. Let him play whatever he wants. Do not let him play whatever he wants. (laughs) Um, okay. 
Uh, on to number 26, uh, a song that was played live way before it was ever uh, released on an actual album. I All right, that was The Promise from The Promise, uh, the compilation that was put out in 2010 of all the uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town era B-sides. But it's been performed fairly regularly since 1976. Uh, People love that song. And there is a ridiculous amount of lore around this one um, because when he started playing it, he was in the middle of the lawsuit with soon-to-be former manager and producer Mike Appel, a lot of it was, of course, over over money and and stuff, and him trying and Mike Appel trying to get him to sign a new contract, but also over the fact that uh, Mike Appel didn't want John Landau coming in and taking over. And people think that this song, which talks about betrayal and all and all that kind of and disappointment, um, think that it's related to that. Uh, Springsteen has denied that vehemently. That uh, he says he's quoted as saying, "I don't write songs about lawsuits." I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm almost willing to take Bruce's word for it about it not being about uh, Mike Appel and the legal drama. Like I, I, to me, there's there's plenty of Bruce Springsteen songs that are about you know betrayal and disappointment. And, That's and, true. Yeah, especially around this this period. I, I guess you know, a lot of us were informed by that maybe, but I I, I, I don't read it quite so literally as that. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, I feel like the, the the betrayal part only really comes in pretty late in the song. Anyway, it's more just about uh, you know kind of disappointment in his own life and right. his own sort of. Uh, the things he's been faded to. Uh, so I don't know. How, how do you read it? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I mean, I think that at this point, I think he would have said, and I think he's like walked that back a little bit to say like, maybe like it could have been some sort of influence, but I think he would have, I think he would have said by now if it really was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And I mean, at that time in the late seventies, when he couldn't go into the studio for, like almost a year uh, because of all the legal stuff. He like legally couldn't go go into the studio and record. They were just touring constantly to make money. Like even after the success of Born to Run, he had very little money at that point. It it really wasn't until the river and Hungry Heart went to the top 10 that he seemed to really have like some pocket money and seemed to have like some options about how he wanted to live his life and not need to tour to make money. Um, but speaking of you know touring constantly, I, I do wonder if he was listening to to Jackson Brown around this time. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, I mean, who you know later obviously wrote like one of the one of the all time great on the road songs and running on empty. But uh, right, like, like when I hear this song, I hear a lot of the Pretender. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, definitely. That's sort of like dolorous kind of plodding piano sound. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it works well for Bruce on this one. Yeah, and I know that they they've been good pals for a long time. Um, So that was The Promise, and we are going on to number 25, which is a song that gets covered in Asbury Park probably about once a week, probably. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Tell me now, baby, is it good to you? And can he do to you the 
So that was, of course, I'm on Fire from uh, Born in the USA, 1984. That was number 25 on our list. Uh, and that is one of the, those Springsteen songs that will not die um, because everyone covers it. Uh, I've covered a million shows in Asbury Park. Everyone covers it. That that and uh, Atlantic City are the two that, like, even if you're just by yourself, you can, you can pretty much do it however you want. And, uh, I mean... Mumford and Sons has covered it. John Mayer, Kenny Chesney, Keith Urban. I saw Grace Potter do it at the Paramount. Um, and it's, it's become like a go-to for indie bands too. Oh yeah, like, you know, Bat for Lashes. I think Lowe does a version. The Chromatics. Like yep. whenever you see like indie band covers Bruce Springsteen, like a ninety percent chance it's going to be on one fire. Oh yeah, and uh, my actually my personal favorite was uh, last year at Asbury Lanes, which Springsteen actually helped reopen last year with a performance. Uh, was uh, Phoebe Bridgers mm. who is like the indie darling of the mo- one of the indie darlings of the moment right now and she did an excellent version. Um but anyway that that was like quintessential 80s Bruce uh the the synth was from Roy Bitten who was not a synth player he was not even a keyboard player he was a, a trained pianist but uh he sort of just picked picked up the synth and played this like amazing indelible melody over it. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful song, and it's it's really so much of it's in the arrangement. Like I feel like this could have been like a pretty marginal rockabilly type song. Mm-hmm. It could have been like, like one of those like side three tracks on the river or something. Where right, uh, but it's all about yeah the, the, the synths and that that kind of ticking drum beat and uh, you know the, the, the really kind of skeleton skeletal picking guitar in the background. Right, and, and just one of Bruce's all time great vocals, I think. And and for such for such like a, a serene song, like a lot of the lyrics are really violent, which, which is yeah. interesting. Like like there's there's two different references to like his skull getting split. Yeah. Off, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, it works because it, it's you know it, it is kind of both both urgent and serene and 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 both like it, it kind of adds up to something that's 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 both very intense and very very calming. And it, it's a really kind of unique song in a lot of ways. I think that's probably why you still hear it get covered so much. Yeah, completely. And, and it had, it reached number six on the, uh, billboard hot 185. Um, it was one of seven, uh, songs from that album to hit, hit the top 10, which is still tied for the record. Can you name all seven of them, Bobby? Um, yeah, probably, uh, dancing in the dark, born in the USA, cover me. Uh, I'm on fire. Uh, no surrender. I, I'm uh, no, that's not no, one of them. Buzzer on that one. Um, all right, hit me with the other three. Uh, I'm saying you didn't say I'm going down. I don't know. Uh, my hometown and glory days. Right. Oh yeah, glory days. Duh. Okay. Well, uh, the trap door will open any second, and, there, and then there will be. <laughs> Sorry, I know you say you're gonna give me a trivia question. Yeah, yeah and there will be. Uh, yeah, you got me. And there will be a new host, uh, also named Bobby, <laughs> in here shortly. Okay, on to number twenty-four, uh, which is one of Bruce's most fun songs. At number 24, that's Sherry Darling from The River, 1980. Uh, and that is a fun party, Bruce, uh, with the big saxophone and just kind of a silly song. And, and it's it's funny, or 
it's just kind of weird compared to all of his other songs talking about him driving in the car alone or driving in the car with the woman he loves or is lusting after. And then this one is uh, get your mom out of the car. She needs to take public transportation back. <laughs> Subway back to the ghetto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, and uh, in uh, Brian Hyatt's great new book, which I've been talking about pretty much every episode, uh, he compares it to uh, the Swingin' Medallion's double shot of My Baby's Love with the party noises and hand claps, and you feel like you're in the middle of a, of a live show or like a house party or something. Um, and this was actually first recorded during the uh, the Darkness sessions, which I did not know. But it obviously they they <laughs> would have been an yeah, interesting fit on that. Album, yeah, they they, uh, they obviously knew that it was not going to work for that one. Um, but this one definitely gets to the sort of fervor and fun of the of the live Bruce Springsteen experience. Yeah, I like the song, and I, I like uh, I love all those the '60s frat rock songs like that, mm-hmm. like Louie Louie and uh, yeah. his his idol Gary U.S. Bonds, uh, Quarter to Three. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, I, I always sort of saw this as kind of his tribute to song Mother-in-Law by Ernie K. Doe, which oh, I'm yeah. sure he's also a fan of. It's one of those the weirdly aged pop classics from the pre-Beatles 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's insane that this song is higher on this list than I'm on Fire. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I like the song. That's it's a fine. very silly song. Yeah, uh, man. That's fine. With, that's fine with me. I take no offense. Um, and the one, the last thing I'll say that I, it, he sings about uh, make her move her big feet or whatever. There are so many feet references in songs <laughs> From Springsteen, I I tweeted about this today. Uh, the in Thunder Road, uh, in Jungle Land, the, the barefoot girl, uh, the barefoot boys, the gang members from uh, Incident on Fifty Seventh Street. There, there's feet in heart and hard to be a saint in the city. Quentin Tarantino, a classic. Rock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and there, there's other ones that I'm obviously missing. Uh, but yeah, the I, that's just something I noticed because you always, you always hear he always sings about fire and night and driving and waking up out of a sleep and not being able to sleep and uh and feet and feet yeah <laughs> and feet completes the set yeah. yeah okay and on to a uh, a song that is much more serious and a really weird uh segue i saw her standing on her front lawn just a twirling her button me and her went for Okay, that's number 23, uh, Nebraska from Nebraska, 1982. And uh, a very not fun Springsteen song, uh, to say the least. Uh, that's downplaying it significantly. It's inspired by an actual 1958 uh, murder spree by a Nebraska teenager named Charles Starkweather. Starkweather was what the song was originally called. Uh, and his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, uh, and Springsteen first learned about this watching uh, a, Tar- a Terrence Malick movie uh, called Badlands. Wonder where he got it, the title from Badlands. <laughs> um, so, uh, and it's a song about a... Uh, a guy who kills a bunch of people and then gets sentenced to prison and I believe gets sentenced to death row afterwards. Um, and it's, uh, despite all that, it's a great, it's a great song. The uh, harmonica's killer. Uh, and it's, and it sets, it's the opening track from the album and sets the tone for Springsteen's best folk rock album by far, in my opinion. 
I wouldn't consider this one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. I'm not really like a huge Nebraska guy in general, but it's a, it's a great opening track. And just the sound of that harmonica roaring out of the speakers is really tremendous. Uh, it, you don't really think of it as kind of one of the, the go-to instruments for the, the Bruce and the E Street Band experience. But yeah, uh, yeah it really lays into it on that one. And yeah. it's interesting. Uh, like I, I, I'm, I'm actually more of a fan of Badlands the movie than I am of, of Nebraska the song. Uh, <laughs> but like they, they take or Bruce, Bruce takes, like, uh, dialogue directly from that movie, or, mm. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's from real life, maybe it's part of the reported story, but there's lines that Martin Sheen has in the movie that, that make it into the lyrics of the song, which, uh, which, which I think is fun. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this was recorded, uh, at, as famously told by a million people, uh, he had purchased a four-track uh, for, like, $1,000. The whole album was pretty much recorded on the four-track. At his, uh, his house, he was living at this little ranch in Colts Neck, uh, which is where he lives now, in a much larger ranch. The... East Street Band tried to cut a bunch of the songs afterwards, and they realized that this doesn't sound nearly as good as the austere, just guitar and harmonica stuff that Bruce was doing um, by himself uh, in his house. So that was Nebraska, uh, which has a ton of great stuff on it, as we've talked about and we will continue to talk about. On to number 22, which is a fan favorite and uh, one of the great early uh, Springsteen tunes. That's Incident on 57th Street, number 22 on our list. That is, of course, from The Wild, the Innocent, the East Street Shuffle, 1973. And uh, this is the better-known cousin of uh, Zero and Blind Terry, which we talked about on an earlier episode. And uh, this is the the ballad of uh, Spanish Johnny and Puerto Rican Jane. Uh, Spanish Johnny, the yeah. same as Johnny in The Promise, or do you think that they're, they're two different people that differentiated by the... You know, man, there were a lot of Johnnies in the 70s. I feel like... <laughs> Especially in Springsteen verse. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say no. Even though there's like five different female names that are all Diane Lozito, his, uh, <laughs> his girlfriend at the time. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's one of those sort of star-crossed lover Romeo and Juliet gang tales. Uh, it's left open-ended when, uh, like Zero and Blind Terry, where just kind of he just kind of goes off at the gang at the end. Uh, there's the big hook, the good night, it's all right, Jane. Um, and people continue to go crazy for this song. Uh, the third of the three MetLife shows that he did in 2016 in, in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, the first hour and a half of the third one, he only played stuff from the first two albums and like outtakes from the first two albums, and people were losing their friggin' minds. And my, me, myself included, my, my, the, the Twitter was going, going nuts that day. <laughs> Um, but that, th- this is a, an early classic and one that I think, uh, has sort of stood the test of time. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, there's certainly no shortage of these on Wild Innocent and these two shuffle. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of all of them. I'm sure a couple of them probably still to come on this list. Uh, mm-hmm. but this is, this is a great one. Uh, I, I love the final chorus where Bruce octaves up. Oh it's, yeah. It's, re- it's really glorious. Uh, is there a consensus about which 57th street this is? Is this the New York 57th street or? You know, there's no 57th Street in uh, Belmar Raspberry Park, so okay. I'm going to say pr- I, I believe this was part of his love affair with New York. It's right. so, uh, so a weird area for him to be hanging out in. Yeah. And, back in the mid-70s. Yeah, and there's actually, uh, in, a, in a future episode, 
good story coming up about 57th Street, specifically not related to this song. So stay tuned. And I have to say that the piano outro to this song segues really beautifully into the piano intro to the next song we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't give it away. Uh, and and uh, but I, I, uh, going right off that, the uh, the storytelling in this is goes into uh, a, a little song called Jungle Land. Uh, it's sort of the precursor to that, which uh, will come up uh, in a couple episodes, I think. Okay, uh, on to. What I believe is our last song of the day, uh, song number 21 on the list, which uh, created a viral moment in Australia uh, a couple years ago. I hid in the cloud and rather the crowd when they said sit down, I stood up. That was Growing Up, number 21. Great tune from Greetings from Asbury Park, uh, a song that every Springsteen fan pretty much knows. Uh, that's often the first song that Springsteen fans learn on guitar. Um, one of our other guests talked about that, Brent. Um, and yeah, and shout out to the uh, the teenager who hopped on stage in uh, Melbourne, Australia a few, a few years ago on the, the River Tour. And uh he was saying in the crowd, like, oh, I can, I can play. And Bruce was like, oh, yeah. He's like, come on up. And then he gives him a guitar, and he, like, immediately starts playing it and sings the whole thing. And uh, it was great. And I, I'm pretty sure I had to write about it. That's, that's, how, I, that's how I know. Um, and the, the song was originally demoed as a song called Eloise, which I did not know. Thanks, Brian Hyatt. Uh, yeah, so is it okay if I call this one a pop song? Uh, I, I, you can do whatever you want, man. Oh, I appreciate yeah, that. What, no, what I, happens once we leave this room? I cannot help you. <laughs> well, no, this to me is like his first great like '70s AM pop song. Like, it, yeah. it's it's got a very kind of tight structure, and it's got a like, a great evolving chorus, and yeah, the, the, the piano hook's really nice, and it just kind of has a it's, a it's a very accessible and easily understood song, which is not always the case with early Bruce Springsteen. So. Right. Uh, yeah, you can hear that. You can picture hearing this one next to like "Lonely Boy" by Andrew Gold. And yeah, like, uh, sort of wistful, uh, you know, sentimental coming of age seventies pop tunes. And, yeah, and a uh, shout out to the nineteen ninety nine Adam Sandler comedy "Big Daddy," uh, who used yeah. this song in a, a, a pivotal late scene. Uh, not a great yeah. movie, but a, a really, really bullseye usage of the song. So. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was actually trying to think of what the movie was because I knew there was one, but yeah, you're absolutely cool. right. Not as useful as uh, the Leonard Skinner song at the beginning of "Happy Gilmore," sure. but. Well, Another, another conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, this was another song played uh, in his audition in 1972. Uh, and if you weren't sold after this one, you, I don't think you were going to be sold with like 22-year-old Bruce just riffing away. Um, so that is all 10 songs. Andrew, how do, how do you feel about this 10-song crop? I feel pretty good. I know only a couple of my, I would say, like absolute personal favorites, but a lot mm -hmm. that, that I, I came to appreciate more in research for this podcast. So, and what, what's your favorite song overall, Springsteen song, all time? Well, I'm on fire, certainly in the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosalita, Thunder Road. I, I, I go pretty obvious with Bruce, so I'm not, I'm not going to be you know blowing away yeah. your listeners with any, any deep cuts or obscure choices. But yeah, I'd say the... the Probably those three. I'm, I'm on fire, Rosalita, and Thunder Road. Okay. And to end this episode, let's do a, the trivia question that I promised. Because you are a pop culture phenom, I'm going to give you a really challenging question. Um, so I'm going to give you three songs from Born to Run, and you are going to rank them by length of song, start it, starting with the shortest, going to the longest. So shortest to longest, Born to Run, Backstreets, Thunder Road. 
I would have said in that order. I would have said Born to Run is the shortest, then Backstreets, then Thunder Road. Nope. Thunder Road, then Backstreets. Yeah. Why oh, would I give it, it to you? Why would I give it to well, you in the correct I, I was, order? You thought I was going to trick I, you? I, I thought maybe it was you know, it was a double reverse sort of trick. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you. Sorry for failing you in your listening. Yeah, that, that's okay. Well, thank you for coming in, Andrew. This has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Andrew Unterberger, find him his content, his ridiculously insightful content about pop and rock music on billboard.com and in billboard magazine you can follow him at uh at au get off my gold yeah if you if you can find au get off my gold uh no obligation yeah follow him for uh all sorts of music stuff and a bunch of uh philadelphia 76ers super fan nonsense trust the process yeah trust the process all right thank you guys for listening and uh have a good one we'll see you soon (laughs) 